Good morning and welcome to the Isle of Faces. Welcome to Scraps and Scrolls, Storm of Swords, Part 2. This is the companion podcast to History of Westeros' Valor Aridus and we are going through Storm of Swords, like I say, thank you for coming. Thank you for joining me on a very frosty isle. Yes, I am Sir Buckley. I am sat in the middle of cold and uh, not that much wind, but don't worry, it is white on the ground, blue in the sky, very clear, very enjoyable. But yes, like I say, bloody cold. I will update you. I will pause the podcast if others or White Walkers appear on the perimeter. Not a whole lot we could do on an island. Not really, <laughs> not many places we can run. We'll figure something out. Don't worry, guys. We're plenty safe. So yes, hello, fellow green folk. Thank you for joining me once again. I hope you enjoyed last week's opening episode of Storm of Swords. Very good, very enjoyable. Lots to get done. Thank you for the listens and the shares of that, of course. Hope you enjoyed last night's live stream from Aziz and the Shea uh, of part two, Valoridis. I was free enough, rarely, to put my head in, say hello. Great to see everyone in the chat. Great to see everyone interacting, as always. As if that isn't enough for you guys, as if Aziz and the Shea don't provide enough places to talk. Let me remind you, you can also join in the community on Slack, on Discord, on Flick, just about anywhere you can think of. Skywriters, they do that as well. They've got a skywriting group. Just hire a plane. You can send a message to Aziz or Shea in the sky. They will see it. So today we are going through part two. We're on our normal schedule now. That's five chapters a week. 17 parts of this overall. Yeah, seems like a long way, but it is a long book and there is a lot to get to. So we'll enjoy that. Don't worry. I want to mention just two things before we get going here. Not as many as usual. Don't worry. The first, not a Song of Ice and Fire related whatsoever. I wanted to say a hearty congratulations. Give a shout out to no dunks podcast formerly the starters formerly tbj the basketball jones they celebrated their 14th anniversary of podcasting on i think it was friday and uh yes we can appreciate what a monumentous achievement that is first podcast i ever listened to nine years ago been listening to it every day since literally every day i listen to those guys just as much as i listen to my wife if not more don't tell her and yeah just a really hearty congratulations to them Back to the Song of Ice and Fire stuff after. You might have seen on my Twitter this week, I took a crack at doing some fan fiction. Yeah, yes, I do write things. I don't know if I go on about it quite enough. Uh, maybe I should go on more. No, 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 don't worry. Don't pause. I won't go on about that much. Uh, back in September, took a little crack at doing some Song of Ice and Fire fan fiction. Posted that up on Wattpad this weekend. It's even got a cool little cover now. So if that's your, your thing, you could check it out. You could let me know what you think. That would be lovely. Thank you very much. And also, of course, before we start, let me say thank you to our patrons. We've had some more patrons signing up. That is very, very much appreciated. Thank you. I hope we can keep providing what you would like to see on the podcast, or hear, rather. And thank you. And like I said on Twitter also, we've seen a large uptick this week in downloads and subscribers. So thank you, everyone, for listening, for pressing download. If you're rating as well, that'd be lovely. Keep leaving reviews. We'd love to read them. And, um, of course, thank you for sharing as well. Word of mouth, that's how these things normally go in our little community. So, yes, please do get in touch. We'd love to hear from you. Any comments, always well received. This is a fandom-driven podcast. That is why we're here, so always good to hear from you. But let's get on with today, shall we? Like I said, five chapters. Let me update you on what they are. We begin with Tyrion 1. We skip a little bit across the Blackwater to Davos 1. We ping back to King's Landing for Sansa 1. Then we're up above the wall for John 1. And finally, we stretch all the way over to Essos for Daenerys 1. So all 1s today, more opening chapters, just like last week, of course. The opening of many very important arcs for Storm of Swords. This is the kind of key book for the changing of the guard, it feels like. We had our status quo in Game of Thrones. Then we saw how that really got messed up in Clash of Kings. Feast and Dance, all very different. A lot of the old guard are dead. A lot of new people and new in uh, old positions, stuff like that. And this is that transition book where all these important things happen. I think if we were looking back 100 years later in Westeros history, you'd point to Storm of Swords. The event of Storm of Swords is where everything kind of really changes. So the end of the war, a lot of really key people die. The stuff in Essos is obviously paradigm once in a millennia type stuff, which we will get to, don't you worry. And especially in terms of that back-to-back at the end of this episode, John 1 and Daenerys 1, this is where those guys move from kind of on the edge, very interesting but not uh, important, they're still getting kind of carried along in the river type thing if you know what I mean, this is where they start steering the boat now in Storm of Swords, they really come into their own, 
they really start affecting the wider world around them and obviously it is huge effects especially in terms of Daenerys but we will get to all that as we get to it so maybe we should start at the beginning with Tyrion 1 and we begin with Dun dun dun, Tyrion versus Tywin. Yes, Tywin returns in truth. And this is probably the first really memorable scene of this young book, at least in terms of one-on-one -on -one hard dialogue, you know, really scorches itself into your memory, the really quotable chapter. Not to take anything away from last week's chapters, of course. But here, Tyrion, he awakes into a world made by Tywin Lannister. When he went to sleep, it was Tyrion's King's Landing. Now it's definitely Tywin's. In Tyrion and Sansa's final chapters of Clash of Kings, we found out a lot more about the aftermath of the Black War, and we even see Tywin making his grand entrance into the hall upon his uh, dungy horse. But this chapter is all about what Tywin has been up to since, and it is plenty, and none of it is good for Tyrion. Much like Tyrion did when he first arrived in the city, Tywin has quickly moved to establish his bases of support, or at least remove Tyrion's. Jacqueline Bywater and the Goldcloaks, gone to Tywin. The mountain men, gone entirely. Bronze cell swords, they've either been killed during the battle or they've been paid off. Um, without swords, Tyrion has no means by which to act on any of his ideas. He can keep his brain, he can keep his good ideas, but he has no tools, no connection to the outside world to actually make those ideas happen. So he's kind of stuck. And it also stings that both of Tyrion's aides went out in a downplayed fashion. The clansmen, they were chased off like animals despite giving their lives to fight for a city that was home to none of them. Didn't matter to them whether King's Landing fell or not, but they still fought anyway. And Sir Jacqueline, he seemed like a good man and he went down trying to keep defence of the city together. So they're kind of mirrors to Tyrion's efforts that have gone unnoticed. No one's mourning Sir Jacqueline, no one's giving the clansmen any due. But then again, at least Tyrion is still alive. And he's still around, rather. And Sir Jacqueline, he's been replaced by Adam Marbrand, and obviously Tywin's decision, because Adam Marbrand is one of Tywin's guys. He is the one of the better Tywin guys, we can admit. He seems a bit nicer, a bit more head-on straight, but he is also one of Tywin's guys, so we can't give him too much of a pass, really. On top of that, Tommen and the Cattleblacks have also been lost, and Alayea has been punished for Tyrion's own mistakes. And surprisingly, it is this last revelation, and I know Aziz spoke about this last night, is his last revelation nearly sends Tyrion into a rage, likely because his memories of Tysha being punished because of him are coming back again. And it's also confirmation of what will await Shay should he slip up further. Maybe he could have told himself, could have tricked himself that he could get Shay out or she would escape harsh punishment. No, no, no. If they do ever find out about Shay, this is exactly what awaits her, or worse. In terms of the Kettle Blacks, Tyrion has always relied on his money and he's never really come up short. It's worked out pretty well with Bronn and Shay so far, for example. But for the first time, his money is useless with these Kettle Black brothers because he finds he simply can't bring his silver spoons to the knife fight that Cersei has started with titles and sex. Tyrion can't match that. There's not a lot he can do. In terms of allies, let's talk about Bronn. One of the largest but less talked about differences between book and show is Bronn not being as friendly with Tyrion in the book. Not that he's unfriendly, and rereaders will know that Bronn is closer to Tyrion than probably anyone else in the world now, due to um, Feast, he names his son Tyrion, and his non-testifying later on in this book. But it's still a business relationship at the end of the day, and at this moment in time, the pay and the ascension is coming from father more than son. We've spoken about the climbs up through social hierarchy of Littlefinger and Davos, but it feels like we ever only see the tail end of those climbs on page. Littlefinger's, yeah, we're going to see him go further, but he's already well established in Game of Thrones, Davos is already a lord and everything like that. Whereas Bronn, we get a good glimpse of his really early steps in this chapter. He's gone from sellsword to knight between this book and last. We know not much longer he'll be a lord, so we're going to see the whole range for Bronn. And let's give a little more. Let's give one more nod to Alayea and especially Cersei as well, because the repercussions of that meeting where Cersei presented Alayea showed that she had her. They are still felt through this book and the next. Obviously, the logic is that if Cersei was going to kill Tyrion, she's just had a few weeks with him disabled in a sickbed to do the deed. That, fairly, is not enough insurance for Tyrion. He's just had his face nearly sliced open on possibly his sister's orders, and definitely he believes it's his sister's orders. Perhaps he is convinced that Cersei would consider killing a sleeping Tyrion, not nearly as fun as more painful deaths or torturing, or the eventual finding and punishing of Shay. And he might not be wrong. I can certainly picture Cersei choosing any of that over just a simple pillow. I don't think that would be nearly enough for her, would it? Let's have a quick note here just on, on Stannis as well and, and the Blackwater. Because I suppose this is the, the first actual confirmation we get that Stannis did survive and escape the Blackwater. Louis may have taken as much from the tone in Sansa's final uh, Clash of Kings chapter. 
But more importantly, Tyrion, he's asking questions about Stannis. He's asking questions about the Black War. He's becoming curious about the goings-on of the outside world. And it's not only an opportunity to update the, the reader on the wider picture of the South, but it's a sign of Tyrion returning to a shade of his former self as a political commander. He can't help but be curious. He can't help but want to gain knowledge because he wants to use knowledge again. So he's coming out of those dream states we saw in Clash. The injury is going to come off. Tyrion will be up and trying to do something within this chapter. But before he goes off to see Tywin, he's still uh, talking to Bronn about the, the larger picture, what's going on around King's Landing, and Bronn tells him this. There's some of his wolves burning their way down toward Duskendale. Your father's sending this Lord Tarly to sort them out. I've half a mind to join him. It's said he's a good soldier and open-handed with the plunder. So the Lannisters already know about Roose sending men to die at Duskendale, something that happened fairly recently, or was decided fairly recently, in narrative terms in Aya's final chapter of Clash of Kings. It's not occurred to me before, but this could possibly be a sign of Roos and Tywin already being in contact, and as Aziz mentioned, he thinks that Tywin, we're going to see him writing letters in a minute, and Aziz concludes these are letters to the spices and the phrase, and all the Red Wedding is coming together, and through, again, through benefit of reread, we can really see the strings tightening, basically. But that's all outside the city. The biggest change in the city, and we'll be discussing this a lot more in Sansa's chapter in a second, is the Tyrells. And I've spoken elsewhere, probably too much, about the Tyrells' superior ability to use propaganda optics to sway the political wave of the city. We get hints of this now with the swelling legend of Marjorie Tyrell rising in the streets, in unison with the promise of food relief, and we really need to remember how important this food is. This point wasn't raised too heavily at the end of Clash of Kings, but recall that this was a city who were killing in the name of King Bread just a few weeks before, so it's not hard to see how the Tyrells are so successful or why the Lannisters feel so off-kilter. They, they were in charge, the Tyrells have just come in and they're already doing a better job, so you'd feel nervous too. Consider that in the past decade or so, the Lannisters held Robert by the strings and had things their way. They had to briefly put up with Ned Stark, and many did not consider him a true problem anyway, and then have had a clear run of it since. But like I say, there's a new family in town and a far more competent one. But let's get to the, the real meat of this chapter. I know you're all begging for it. We need to go and see Tywin Lannister. And let's start with a description, an uh, early on description that Tyrion gives. About his throat he wore a chain of golden hands, the fingers of each clasping the wrist of the next. That's a handsome chain, Tyrion said, though it looked better on me. Boy oh boy, doesn't this sentence stand out considering Tyrion's final chapter and Shay's terrible end? Right now it is merely a token of the position that's been stolen from Tyrion. Later it will be a symbol of so much else that has been taken from him, specifically Shay. So, obviously, Aziz, he got through a lot of this conversation with Tywin, so excuse me if we overlap just a little bit, but uh, for the most part I think I'm clean. Tywin, he's talking about letters winning battles. He knows a heck of a lot of information about Duskendale that like we mentioned a moment ago. So again, we need to reiterate the clues spread throughout the text about the Red Wedding already being in full effect and Tywin's smugness, as well as him not wanting to include Tyrion. They really do stand out on reread if you're looking for it. We spoke in Clash of Kings about Reek and Ramsay being one of those things you really, really do recognise on a reread. Uh, more so than the first time out. And I think this is the same kind of thing with the Red Wedding. It's one of the largest differences a rereader will find across the series. And especially just how early on in this book, you know, essentially you've got no chance as a first time reader. Luckily, most of us, I, I'm assuming nearly all of us, are rereaders here. We can chit chat about it. And I have to say, I think Tywin's most petty moment in the whole series is where he has to correct his own son about who deserves more credit for winning the battle. Uh, Aziz made a good point last night about. Tyrion also kind of overblows his own contributions, but Tywin, he has to correct his own son, and if that doesn't perfectly sum up their relationship, I don't know what does. Tywin, he also does a spectacular job of selective memory. Not only does he not mention Jamie's shortcomings, but he doesn't bring up the battle of the Fords or his own bad position of the entire previous book. That's just all forgotten. That doesn't count as history if it's bad for Tywin, obviously. Or even the fact that he rode a gold horse into the freaking throne room, yet apparently Tyrion is the one begging for applause. Hmm, okay. But after that, it all comes pouring out. In one of the better speeches of the entire series, both Tyrion and Tywin, but especially Tywin, just let the gloves absolutely shoot off. Everything that has been hinted at before in their relationship is basically confirmed. 
Tywin's idea that Tyrion murdered his wife, his annoyance at Tyrion's physical form and how it is an insult to his precious house, and his belief that Tyrion is too close to Tytos in terms of interest with sex workers, Tytos being Tywin's father, I'm sure we all know the backstory there. And then that gets doubled down with a very clear mirror into both past and future regarding Tysha and Shay, with a discussion about Alagea and simply... This is an absolutely fascinating passage that I certainly can't do justice to. I'm going to leave it to a C's. He did a, a wonderful job. I'm not going to try and match that. Don't worry. So final note for this chapter. It's something that's always bothered me, and Tyrion picks up on it here. What was Tywin's plan for inheritance? As much as he loves himself, he knows he is not immortal. So what's the plan when he does pop the clogs? He can't legally give the rock to Jamie, and this he has always planned, to either have him removed from the Kingsguard or simply shift the goalposts once Joffrey is in charge, change the charter type thing. Could have been that was always the plan. He obviously wasn't intending to give Castle Rock to Tyrion, and it seems he doesn't believe Cersei deserves it after her mistakes of uh, her short rule. But then again, she might be the only candidate left. I definitely can't imagine Tywin leaving the rock to Kevin or any nephews, and surely that would just leave the possibility of infighting among the family, as I'm not sure it's even lawful for Tywin to choose who gets his castle when he has living sons. I'd have to look up if there's examples of that. I'm sure there is somewhere in Fire and Blood or the World Book. But anyway, that is Tyrion 1. So, I mean, we can talk a little bit about Tyrion. Tyrion's overall in this book it is... It is a tragic arc, isn't it? We, I think we know how this book ends. The transformation that Tyrion goes through is starting to get hinted at at the end of Clash of Kings, but now it's a, a death spiral. We've spoke about how he was at the highest of his highs. He is going to speed towards his lowest of lows. Uh, I wouldn't say he quite gets there in this book because Dance has the, that special title, but certainly we're going to see him just lose everything he thought he had gained, which he never really had, everything he's always wanted. And all those losses that he's felt his whole life for the kind of empty holes they're just going to be exposed in this book in the end it's one thing to have this empty hole you can kind of keep to yourself and wrap under that armor that he told Jon Snow about back in early Game of Thrones but to have them kind of exposed to the light later in this trial all of his fears and kind of inner doubts and you know what I mean inner pains to have that exposed to everyone to have them laughed at by people that you tried to save well, we will come to it, won't we? We will come to it. There's a lot to happen before that as well. But yes, definitely, like I say, the arcs in this book are just amazing. I certainly can't do justice to them. So let's move on. Let's skip across the water, hire a skiff, and go out to visit Davos in Davos 1. And kindly, uh, Aziz uh, got to my opening remark about Davos being our, uh, our everyman POV and really having to go back down to the bottom and climb all the way back up. In, the, in his own Storm of Swords arc. So I don't need to get to that, but I will say it's not often we see lords bowing so low they have to suck the guts from crabs uh, after all. So I think Davos gets a reminder of this kind of hardship and it brings him a bit closer to Stannis, likely reminding him of the kind of thing the latter had to do at Storm's End. That was the kind of trial by fire that Stannis had when he was younger, that it was him against the elements, him against hunger, and not just him, but thousands of other men too. So Davos is really kind of linking up here. Now, unfortunately, it's not just physical woes that all that plague Davos and his little barren uh, spy. And I'm sure you you remember the, the case of him being stuck on this rock in the middle of the in, of the bay. All those terrible physical things of thirst and hunger that uh, as he's got to in my note, they're not all that plague Davos. He has the he has the horrible memories of the battle behind him, which are difficult enough to deal with, even if he didn't have multiple family members involved and and likely dead. And of course, because of the kind of guy that Davos is, depression or PTSD just aren't enough. He must also add copious amounts of guilt into the mix as he visits what his role should have been as a captain, but more importantly, as a father. He concentrates on that a lot at the beginning of this chapter. And again, kindly, thank you, sir, as he's got to one of my uh, longer notes about uh, Davos's relationship with the sea and how it's interesting that he's uh, experiencing that here. And I actually did note as well that we never really get to see, see Davos again after this. He will sail to the wall and he'll sail to White Harbour, but we don't really get to see much of it on page. He's very land-based after this. Most, this book is obviously on Dragonstone. Later he's going to be at White Harbour uh, and the wall. But I'm hoping and I would imagine that might change come Winds of Winter. I think we might see, see Davos, Smuggler Davos again, so let's look forward to that. Now in terms of how Davos is going to be rescued later on, 
The unlikelihood of a ship arriving for rescue, and Davos knows exactly how unlikely that is given the spears of the Merlin King, and the fact that surely any Stannis loyal boats wouldn't be brave enough to patrol the bay after the monumental defeat. All that really makes that rescue and survival seem divine, and I think later on Davos will look back to this miracle as him having survived for a reason that there is something left to do in his life, and it will spur him on to make dangerous decisions he does regarding Edric, etc. He doesn't want to waste this one-in-a-million chance he's been given to live again. That's really going to motivate him, not just kind of at the end of this chapter, but in his next chapters where he's going to think on that quite heavily. But before he can get to all that higher purpose, the survivor's guilt nearly ends the story prematurely. Those themes of a father leading his sons towards death, of him being old yet surviving the young and fit, that's a, a big guilt part of it, they all come and tempt him into not bothering to re-enter the living world. After all, he has failed at his most important task, caring for his boys. What else is there? Lucky for us, Davos does not heed the siren song he doesn't return to his beloved sea. I've always felt that we don't actually get Davos thinking about his sons a, particularly a lot, really, throughout the whole series, but when he does it is incredibly poignant. Especially when we link this back to his early chapters in Clash, I think it was his first chapter, where he focuses on the boys and what his saving of Storm's End and his subsequent climb up the social ladder meant to them. You get the sense that a childless Davos would have been content to have smuggled until the end of his days, but Father Davos wanted something better for his sons and his grandsons and achieved that. Except now his sons are gone, and he doesn't have any grandsons, and that great deed of Storm's End, the loss of his fingers, and everything since seems suddenly empty. Then again, forgotten at this moment is that Davos still has two young sons that will definitely still feel the effects of his climb. Recall that clash passage where Davos outlined how the older of his boys would remember their meagre starts, but the younglings would only recall a lord's life or a lord's son's life. But it would be foolish of us to think that the survival of one child can soften the blow of the death of another. Just ask Catelyn. The death of a child is world-ending no matter what. But that connection also makes me think of poor uh, Maya? Myra? Ma Maya, hmm. the wife that we never see. One day, perhaps long delayed or perhaps not, a raven will have appeared telling her that four of her sons, and possibly her husband, depending on the timing, drowned or burn or both in battle. And who knows what kind of support system Maya Seaworth has around her. But essentially, she would have had to hear this terrible news alone, completely powerless and heartbroken, much as Catelyn was. So I hereby declare my hope that Maya will somehow appear and wins. We do have some POVs in the Stormlands after all, so it's not out of the question, is it? Uh, and again, Aziz got to my note on uh, Davos being quite close to Crescent in this moment when he starts to think about Melisandre and he starts to think about the fire and he notes the two together. Obviously, Melisandre had nothing to do with the wildfire and we must note that Davos doesn't assign blame to Imri Florent for his bungling of the attack or to Stannis for putting Imri in charge in the first place. So a little bit of bias there. And on the note of Dance suggesting that Melisandre has Davos's finger bones... I don't believe they belong to Davos, because I, I just I think somehow retrieving them out of the bay is a stretch too far for me. But I can foresee a situation where Davos hears about Melisandre carrying around a bag of finger bones and absolutely freaking out about what that might mean for him, because he focuses on those a lot. He He's lost them in the bay in his swim to escape, and he thinks about them a lot here, so they will come back, or the idea of them will come back later on in dance. Davos thinking on Melisandre and aligning her of the wildfire just brings back the guilt even more as he focuses on his part at Storm's End when he smuggled her in and at not pulling a crescent earlier on. He even manages to tie this in with a semi-religious experience and again I point you to Davos's first POV opening with the burning of the Dragonstone 7 as Davos hears the mother's voice. It's worth noting that while I think we all agree this is just the fever or hunger at work here, it's pretty much the most we ever get in terms of the seven actually pulling their finger out and doing some work so they have a real influence on davos he goes into a, a religious space and he is actually quite tied to religion through that early burning something i didn't know when we were doing the reread in the last book while the guilt and the growing obsession for melisandre and all that jazz does equal bad times for davos two good things come out of this experience firstly davos doesn't pull an air on and become a religious fanatic after hearing the mother quotes while he carries the same ideals as he did before, it's coming from an angle of doing good rather than doing good for the Seven. Secondly, he begins to take on a new line of thinking towards Stannis. While he won't directly blame him for the battle, as we mentioned, or anything else, 
he does realise that the man is not omnipotent and needs to be challenged or defied in some places to get where he needs to go. Knowing where Davos's storm mark is going to take us, that's an, inc- that's an incredibly important distinction to start realising. And I guess we can add on the third that I mentioned earlier, Davos seeing all this as motivation to carry on and get the job done throughout this book. This is all summed up in his final exchange with his possible saviours. Inwardly, Davos labels all his flaws and guilt, but outwardly he still presents his pride and purpose as a captain and a knight, despite what those titles have brought him, which is actually just the loss of his sons. More importantly, he declares his loyalty for Stannis, and cements his figure as that of undying loyalty to the man he has chosen to live for. He could have chosen to walk into the sea, he could have chosen to abandon Stannis. No, this is him drawing a line in the sand and stepping over it into Stannis' camp forever. Before we leave Davos here, let's just consider what would have actually happened were he to die or be captured on this rock, because it has some huge implications later on. Not only is Dragonstone very different with probably Axel Florent becoming Hand, so sorry Chlorile, you're probably getting attacked, but Stannis starts down a much darker path with the burning of Edric Storm. Also, much more likely is that Mance takes out the Night's Watch and the Boltons are left to their own devices, because I doubt Axel Florent is delivering those particular letters to Stannis. That does make me wonder, does that set up a Boltons versus Wildlings battle? Maybe, but overall, it's still pretty bad news for everybody, especially us as Davosless readers. So that is Davos 1. Before we start going to real far-off locations, we're going to skip back over the bay and we're going to Sansa 1, back to King's Landing. And again, as he's got to my uh, opening comment about Sansa being stationary and her basically her arc over this whole book, so I won't bore you with that again. But I have to admit from the get-go, I did not remember that Sansa's arc opens this strongly with this this really important chapter. We get two big kind of sigh of relief moments in this chapter. A real early treat from George, whether looking at it from the perspective of a first-time reader or a rereader. Firstly, we get our first in-depth look at the Tyrells and how, and how they are going to inseminate themselves into King's Landing or into power. And it's really our first decent look at any of them, minus Loras. But a much bigger moment is that Sansa is finally able to let go and tell it how it is about Joffrey. All of us have been asking for her to realise it herself back in game and have been so frustrated that she couldn't do anything about it, about that realisation in Clash of Kings. Sansa being able to stop lying and confirm to the world that Joffrey is a monster, to ditch those little bird tweetings as Sandor called them, is a real fist punch type of moment. What an opening chapter and it's probably my favourite so far in this young book. And again, I've got to be pretty happy as he's got to a lot of my notes in this chapter about the the general state of the city and the Tyrell's influence on that. So thank you, Aziz. Let me just add about the on the point of a marriage really being important for keeping everyone happy and giving some people something to focus on. It does make you wonder if the Cersei slash Joffrey slash Tyrion era of rule might have gone smoother if they had pushed Joffrey's marriage to Sansa forward a bit. Obviously, in hindsight, they'd be worse off because they have no Marjorie or Tyrells. But at the time, it might have helped out with public opinion and offering them some distraction from impending doom. Of course, it really is a, a quick needle to swing because people would also probably be pretty pissed if you're going to have this massive wedding while they're all starving outside, uh, as I think we see in Fire and Blood. This is the first high of King's Landing that we've seen since the Hand's tourney, and it, it will last for the majority of the remainder of the series, but as the Tyrells finally become distracted by other events and kind of start getting pulled in different directions in, in Feast of the Crows, we will start to see the cracks appear, and I think we all agree that we'll return to an angry King's Landing before long in Winds of Winter. So, interestingly, Sansa looking at Marjorie provides a kind of two-way mirror. Firstly, Marjorie is what Sansa aspired to be as a child, and could have even become if she had a father who was a bit more inclined to using his children's pawns than, than Ned Stark was. Marjorie is the queen of love and beauty, a woman who will marry a king and be adored by the cheering fans. Early Game of Thrones Sansa wanted every single piece of that. That was her blueprint. She would have turned down absolutely none of it. But the other side of the mirror is that we can easily see how much Game of Thrones Sansa has disappeared. She isn't fopping around at the arrival of this beautiful princess character. She's analysing why the people like her so much, despite any reason to. She's wondering what Marjorie will really want and how she'll go about getting it. Sansa has her King's Landing lenses on and is putting them to use. All of the lessons about people's true nature, true goals, and how the politics of the court work are full on display here. Overall, Sansa can recognise there is something thin or fake about this new Tyrell image that everyone is shouting about. So right from the get-go, we're getting it dead on. 
even before she actually has to go and speak to the Tyrell, Sansa's thinking, she's analysing, this is the Sansa we're going to come and know and Feast for Crows and probably on for the rest of the series, that political-minded, that grown-up Sansa. She's grown up a lot and she can just see things differently to how she saw them, obviously, in Game of Thrones, but even in Clash of Kings, she's really starting to put those skills to use now. Having said that, this awareness doesn't stop Sansa from being taken in by the Tyrell game just a short while later, so she might be on her way, but Sansa is not fully formed just yet. But, like I say, all of this is a statement on how far she's come and what we should be ready for in this book. So we have one mark of Sansa being grown and more learned already, but her escorting to the lunch meeting by Loras brings about another from an external source, the revelation that his giving of a red rose to Sansa at the hands tawny was a one-way thing. Which is obviously very sad for Sansa, she's able to look back at the tourney and at least remember a semi-happy time, even if she isn't the fancy view. But that moment meant something to her. It was a culmination of dreams and songs and really opened the door, kind of connected her to this world of chivalry and yet more songs. To be fair, imagine if she'd met Marjorie back then. Yeah, <laughs> she would have really gone head over heels. But that all turns out to have been a lie as well. That's twice already we've had the hands tawny brought up in this chapter, perhaps because that was the best example we ever got of southern politics and customs as they are supposed to be. Yes, Ned had got a whiff of what's going on behind the curtain, but by and large, that tourney was a success and did everything it was supposed to do. And that whole idea is the Tyrell's arena. So by reminding us of that, we get a nice red carpet to walk along into a Tyrell-led King's Landing. Everything between the hands turning and now, not so great really. Now we're getting back to that kind of level, ideally. And of course, Sansa has no idea about the relationship between Renly and Loras, so she doesn't realise her mistake in bringing Renly's death up. While Loras's sadness over said death comes across clearly, I find his guilt over killing Robar Royce the more interesting point. Robar honestly seemed like one of the good guys, almost one of the kind-hearted old guard that have slipped away in, in Game and Clash like I keep mentioning. He saved Catelyn's life after all and acted a true knight, and died for it. But knowing Loras feels this way will become important much later in Storm of Swords when Jamie and Brienne return and we clearly see Loras is desperate to shift some of the blame he currently gives himself over to Brienne instead. So that's the first uh, Tyrell fence that Sansa's going to jump in this chapter by being escorted. Next along, she gets to see Sir Garland Tyrell, and this is our first introduction to him. He's one of my personal favourites, and a man who generally seems kind and decent, or perhaps I'm just been taken in by the Tyrell machine as well. Who can say? I'd have to ask Sansa. I must say our introduction to him isn't an actual meeting, obviously, but seeing him fight off these multiple opponents at once. Though Garland played the important part of of Renly in the battle and was a critical fighter in that battle, this part of his personality isn't discussed all that much. Loras is the warrior, he gets the attention of best swordsmen and all that, not Garland. But Garland doesn't seem interested in fame or glory, though he might generally be a better swordsman than Loras for we know at least equal. It makes Winds of Winter a very exciting proposition in terms of Garland returning to protect the Reach from Euron. Will we actually see the sword skills on full display? Possibly, I certainly hope so. And again, we're seeing that the Tyrell Rose has layers. Even if we were to take Garland on our first intro to him here as a pretty amazing swordsman, we're later going to find out that the intelligence and decency beneath the armour. So that's Loras done, that's Garland ticked off. Now Sansa goes through these kind of this wave of Tyrell women, and she must have felt a certain level of delight walking through them, especially given all the young cousins, because she's been devoid of pretty much any female company her whole time in King's Landing especially with people her own age, and we shouldn't downplay the incredible effects that kind of isolation can have on her on top of everything else. Whilst mentioning the cousins, it's worth noting a few of them are going to travel from this lovely afternoon to imprisonment with the Faith later on. I also, I did not remember this is the first mention, of, or at least the first appearance of Taina Merriweather, and that, that's going to come back up later, so remember that. So like I say, this, this wave of Tyrells, because there are a lot of them, uh, are supposed to be a, a great relief of food, of purity. They're a representation of the Reach overall. This is brilliantly represented here by the sheer number of them, the sheer number of women, especially so many of them being young, there's a pregnancy present. So it's a far cry from the court that we know. It's almost as if Garth Greenhand has just been walking through, spreading his famed fertility, and people are popping up like her, apparently they did in the legends. But that all leads to the person we most want to see in this chapter, and that's Elena Tyrell, the Queen of Thorns and the person who Sansa is actually going to meet. So when reading back through this conversation, we can see Elena put two different two different approaches, or again, two different waves into her conversation with Sansa. The first is sympathy. She's very sympathetic, and she establishes links to both Rickard Stark and Hoster Tully. So she's, she's kind of 
putting Sansa on familiar ground, even though Sansa's not actually all that knowledgeable about either of them. But Elena, she's kind and generous, and she likely knows that Sansa's had very few of these types of interactions since being at King's Landing. I don't think anyone's uh, been asking her how her family's doing recently. Then, once she believes Sansa is fairly on side and likely has no machinations of her own, she gets down to real, very direct talk, giving Sansa a complete opposite of everything she's experienced with the Tyrell so far. So again, layers. And Elena turning her tongue on her own family, on Mace especially, and the ambitions of all those so recently clashing to be kings is also a breath of fresh air, and instantly makes the Queen of Thorns stand out among those who not only peddle but truly believe in their own bullshit, which is most people in... Uh, in King's Landing. So only not only stands out to Sansa, but to us as well. We're not we don't normally get this kind of very accurate take on what their families are up to and what everyone's been doing during Clash of Kings. She's really uh, talking to us here. Memorable to Sansa, memorable to us. Sansa gets a unique interaction and Elena is able to see all of Sansa's reactions, begin to plot how she can be used. And let me just read you this one quote from that, that little speech from Elena. There's entirely too much tut tutting in this realm, if you ask me. All these kings would do a deal better if they would put their swords down and listen to their mothers. And that is very, very reminiscent of Catelyn's interaction with Stannis and Renly, where she wants to bash their heads together and knock some sense into them uh, back in Clash of Kings. Of course, all of Elena's talking, whether soft or sharp, has an end goal in finding out about Joffrey. Sansa finally breaking through her glass cage and admitting what she has kept internal for so long is a huge moment in her character arc and in her growth as a person. I don't think it is so very different to Theon being actually being able to say his own name again and actually speak out against Ramsay. It is a great awakening in terms of her ability to leave the chains of Joffrey behind and it really signals what will come to pass later on in this book. And again, we really can't undersell how important it is for Sansa to just be able to say all this out loud, how that makes it all the more real but also so relieving to finally share a problem that has been rotting her from the inside. And again, let's consider what, what happens if Sansa doesn't tell the truth about Joffrey here. How much does it change? Personally, I think Elena is kind of committed already about killing Joffrey. She's just trying to secure her own channels of information. It's not like Joffrey hasn't been beating Sansa in full view of the castle or firing crossbows out into the public. Elena will find out all these things and she will not want Marjorie marrying him. The only difference really is to Sansa herself, who wouldn't have this real breakout moment, maybe isn't involved in the actual murder and is slightly behind in terms of her own development. Let's read a quote from this, this revelation from Sansa. My father always told the truth. Sansa spoke quietly, but even so, it was hard to get the words out. Lord Eddard, yes, he had that reputation, but they named him traitor and took his head off even so. The old woman's eyes bore into her, sharp and bright as the points of swords. It's key that it's a mention of her father that truly persuades Sansa to swing the axe and break the glass. Elena is sharp enough to see that by hinting at sympathy to Eddard, Sansa has an ally she can finally trust in. But it's also an internal decision on Sansa's part that she has a chance to be like her father here, despite the danger of doing so, and she should take it. She then says this, Joffrey is a monster. He lied about the butcher's boy and made father kill my wolf. Now, we knew any confession about Joffrey would refer back to Game of Thrones and killing Ned, but it's super important that Sansa takes it back this far in Game of Thrones, all the way back to her, the first chapter of her POV, her first POV. This was our first real evidence of Joffrey's evil, and Sansa is finally making him pay. Her loss of Lady was too important for her to even fully comprehend yet, but it hasn't been forgotten and it will be repaid. That's a real nice uh, moment to see that Sansa has not forgotten Lady. The final facet of this conversation is the offer of Highgarden and marriage to Willis. And if young Sansa was excited about going to King's Landing, imagine what going to Highgarden would mean to her. Uh, again, speak a little bit too much about Highgarden and the whole idea of... Uh, kind of fairy tale castle in uh, that book I keep mentioning and I won't do so again here. So imagine what that would mean to her about marrying an essential prince and gaining a sister as opposite to Aya as possible. It's everything Sansa ever dreamed of and even the revelations of Joffrey and Cersei can't sully that temptation. It's worth noting that Sansa sees Marjorie as looking like Loras during the moment of this offer. As discussed earlier, Loras was her intro into the song world during the hand's turning. Now Marjorie is playing that role with an even better offer. She's potentially the doorway into Highgarden. Finally for this chapter, it's a really interesting conversation on Marjorie and Elena's motivations in this offer. None of us are foolish enough to ignore that this is a political move to gain Sansa as an important play piece to be cashed in later, but I wonder if there is an element of wanting to save a young girl, wanting to give Joffrey his due, and a general willing to do some good. Maybe that's present as well. 
Would they do any of this if Sansa was just a maid or a washerwoman with no claim to the North? No, absolutely not. But are they glad that one of their political machinations also saves a young girl and generally makes someone's life better for once? I like to think so. You might disagree. Right, now we've had some King's Landing. Last week it was all Riverlands. This week so far, all King's Landing in the sur surrounding area. But now we're going up, up, up and away, all the way to the north, all the way above the wall and to the Wildling camp as we visit John 1. John's arc during a storm is both monumental and divided, in a similar way to Clash of Kings. His first half will be learning about the Wildlings as a people and united culture, something very similar to Daenerys learning about the Dothraki early in her Game of Thrones arc. There are numerous similarities between Wildlings and Dothraki, especially in terms of how they are seen by the more civilised societies, supposedly civilised. John will mix this learning experience with his first time interaction with love and attraction, as well as working with his antagonist, not antagonist, Mance Raider. So much of John's arc to this point has been about oaths and truths and paths to take, but all of it pales in comparisons to the choices he has to make in Storm's Swords. If Game and Clash have all been learning theory for John, then Storm really is his foray into the real world, his first day on the actual job. And all of that is just the first half. After that comes his return to a changed war with new politics and people, and a war to fight that John must shine in. And like, so like I say, Storm of Swords is that old guard is going everywhere, not just down south in the politics. The wall, we had our status quo and game and clash, now it's going to be completely turned around in this book. And a war to fight that John must shine in. For my two cents, it's one of the best parts of the series. I'm talking about this latter half of John's Storm of Swords arc. And probably my favourite part of all of John's arc, especially when John truly has to look into himself when Stannis comes calling. For me, Storm, especially at second half, is where John moves from outlying potential to a true top-tier, top-three character. We also shouldn't discount the value of finally learning about the Wildlings as a people. While technically not present in the Game of Thrones prologue, they have been consistent on periphery and are obviously going to be a huge feature in Dance of Dragons. Let me read a part of the opening paragraph to you here to open this. The world was grey darkness, smelling of pine and moss and cold. Pale mists rose from the black earth as the riders threaded their way through the scatter of stones and scraggly trees, down towards the welcoming fires strewn like jewels across the floor of the river valley below. There were more fires than Jon Snow could count. Hundreds of fires, thousands, a second river of flickery lights along the banks of the icy white milk water. So the chapter is starting out with a rather beautiful passage, I'm sure you'll agree, even if it was a slightly long quote for me to read, that immediately challenges our conceptions of what the wildlings can be. It's the outside natural world that is grey and cold, but the collection of wildling life is already being associated with something natural and beautiful, and of being, some, of being one of the land. It's a little hint to open that wouldn't stand out without looking for it, but we know that's, that's George's style. It's also important to unite the ideas of, wild, of wildlings and nature. John is not a stranger to the outside world. He's been above the wall for some time now. He's been in the Wolfswood a bunch. And even though he grew up in Winterfell, he's not as domesticated as a Joffrey, for example. But even with all that, he still feels quite the outsider here. Once he actually gets down into the camp, we are instantly introduced to the problem that will come to dominate the rest of John's life, maybe. He might have more yet. The wildlings are at once an incredibly dangerous force and also a living community of children, women and families. John duly notes the warriors first, especially the arrows being fletched for his father's land for the north and remembering his duty protection both as a brother of the Night's Watch and as a Stark. But once he gets past that initial duty, he sees the children and the cooking, he sees people dancing. These aren't the stories he's grown up with. This isn't the mysterious enemy that comes and kidnaps women from above the wall. This isn't Rattleshirt. This is perhaps the clearest comparison we have to Danny's introduction to the Dothraki camp in early Game of Thrones. John also notes the duality and the sheer side of the Wilding camp, mixed with its disorganisation, opening up the idea of Geol's decision to attack back in the prologue. I argued it was a bad idea. John still thinks there was a chance based on this lack of discipline. The memory of Eddard Stark apparently agrees with him, so who can say? Maybe I'm wrong. Not much time seems to have passed from John having to kill Corrin, so as we'd expect for a son of Eddard Stark, the cult comes on pretty strong. And John is already having to weigh up what's going on with his oaths, so it's doubly hard to think he has to come to peace with killing another member of the Night's Watch, however long ago that was. It's also interesting when John has his first conversation with Igor about freedom. And I say first because this is going to come up a lot in this book, don't worry. But in this first one, technically, this is the first time we've actually seen John free since his very first chapter in Game of Thrones. The first time he's really had a choice to make. 
Recall the end of his Game of Thrones arc was very much about such choices to go to Rob and the constraints he had upon him at the time. Those are all gone now. John can act and choose however he likes, but mentally, he still puts himself in the same box. He still tells himself he's a man of the Night's Watch, he can't do this, he can't do that. And obviously at the moment, he wouldn't even entertain the idea of actually converting. But we know as rereaders that he'll soon be testing those waters and pushing those boundaries, thanks to Egret's continued philosophy on freedom. It's also not a lost point that even Egret admits freedom can be another form of constriction, as John is free to leave but is then also free to be killed. So the nature of freedom, choice and oaths is already being built up strongly again, and obviously Egret's underlying argument is that it's better to die free than live imprisoned. Egret believes she is living a true natural life, and John will soon come much closer to her way of thinking. So that's all just in John walking into camp. He's yet to go to the big tent to see the big man. That's what this chapter is really about, our meeting with Mance Raider. So let me read to you one of the first things he sees when he, when he enters Mance's tent. A dark young man and a pretty blonde woman were sharing a horn of mead. So, hi Val. We've, uh, we've got a Tainer Merriweather sighting and a Val sighting so far already today. With neither really being given any notice of the roles they will play later on. So let me say again for the eighth time, Storm of Swords really is the gateway for a new era of characters and a new stage of A Song of Ice and Fire that is being made very clear to us. So I, we know what happens during this meeting. John goes into the tent, he's looking for a big bad king, and he sees some guy playing a flute, someone having a, a cup of mead, and then he sees Tormund. So to be fair, I think we probably will make the same distinction, but I love John falling into the trap of, of looking for this large hulking man who dominates the room it's a trap i'm sure many fell into on their first read round that yeah this probably is the wild king this big huge guy but john gets blindsided by not finding a giant with bulging muscles and a hearty laugh but by someone who just kind of looks like your average guy so if we're going to keep that dothraki comparison going mance is about as far from Carl drogo as you'd ever find but he's also far from someone like joffrey there's no fine clothes no crowns it's just a guy important for both john and us to learn it's our first signal that Mance is a man who's using his title as an engine to co accomplish a wider mission, not just because he likes having a title or someone kneeling at his feet. I guess this was also quite key to Mance infiltrating Winterfell back in Game of Thrones. People rarely take notice of singers in the first place, they're just kind of part of the background for many people, but they definitely don't look at the ones who are described like Mance, just a normal looking guy. Had Tormund strolled through Winterfell's door um, and started singing, I'm assuming someone might have taken the double take. And we should also give some time over to John meeting Tormund for the first time, given what a fan favourite he is. While we have to remember that this is not TV Tormund, our book version doesn't waste time making a name for himself either. In fact, he gets them listed off so we know where we stand. I probably could have named only one or two off the top of my head before this reread, but the names, mixed with the fact he's just hanging out in the King's Tent, tells us a lot about Tormund as a wildling. He has a keep, he's obviously talented in combat, and he really likes people to know about his exploits. I definitely don't remember Talker to the Gods, that's one of the titles that Mance lists for him. I can think of a reasonable explanation for all these other titles, but I'd really like to know how this one came about, especially if other wildlings refer to the others as gods, like Craster does. Uh, that might be interesting. Also, for these titles, there's Hornblower and Breaker of Ice, and those being listed next to each other now seems kind of ominous if we want to believe Mance truly was hunting the Horn of Draman. Hornblower and Breaker of Ice together, hmm. Let's move from Tormund to the main man. John's conversation with Mance about how he came to be there is a highly pressured event. If John fails, not only does it mean his own death, but it means he gets no information back to Geo and the other crows, but worst of all, it means he had to kill Corrin for nothing. John actually handles himself very well against a clearly cunning Mance. He mixes enough truth with enough lies to not give anything away or seem too weak to be useful, but we equally see Mance's smarts when he tries to test John about Craster before Tormund unfortunately puts his foot in it. And again, John learns more about this setup of this court. Nowhere else in the world could someone like Tormund speak like this in front of a king. Prior to this book, we might not have given John a fair chance in a, a verbal match with Mance Raider, so he's really showing off different kind of skills here. Skills that will come to matter a lot when he has to deal with an entirely different king later in this book. Let me read a quote to you from Mance here. Vanished, I said Mance Raider, and not just the free folk. So we would have to assume that this is Mance talking about Waymar, Garrod and Will, wouldn't we? This raises questions, and the most important is how aware Mance is about the threat of the others and their exact movements, but the second is how he knows that Night's Watchmen specifically are being taken too. Did he have people monitoring Waymar or other rangings? Did they find evidence of it, like a cloak or something? 
have the warg seen some evidence herself? And this is the most intriguing to me. What would the other's response be to seeing a watching eagle in the sky? Hmm. I suppose there's an outside chance Mance was talking about all the disappeared animals, but this way of thinking is a lot more fun to me. So that, the conversation then goes for that, from that to Mance remembering his two trips to Winterfell, and it seems ideally placed to make a connection with John. The first trip wants to make a bridge over a fond memory John has with Rob, and also puts John back in a mindset he had long before becoming a member of the Night's Watch. The second is a more general attempt to impress John, and perhaps make him question some of the things he knows to be certain. Surely young John would have always believed it was impossible for anyone, and definitely for a wildling, to infiltrate Winterfell. So Mance is doing quite a good job of just getting John off that Night's Watchman mindset and just testing some things he knows to be true, just to open his mind a little bit. What is truly brilliant is John asking for Mance's reasons for desertion first, so that he may learn what reason he could give that would be believed. And again, I don't think we would have guessed John had this kind of ability, this kind of smarts, prior to the fact. It's an incredibly clever technique that really pays off, as he learns a lot about Mance's values and what he can say to further his mission. What is discussed less is that Mance actually really wants John on side too. If he can gain a member of the Night's Watch who's genuine, it'll really help with the assault on the wall. Is he still super cautious about John's motives? Of course. You don't unite a hundred wilding cans by trusting everyone, but you can also kind of sense his excitement and the potential of gaining John. Also, John notes that Mance likes the sound of his own voice. Mance likes songs and tales, especially ones about himself. So the possibility that John is following a similar line of thought to Mance's own turncloak story is too tempting to ignore. Finally for this chapter, in the end, Mance has provided John's answer for him. By being at Winterfell, John can make up his excuse of where did they sit the bastard, as something Mance can immediately confirm and put trust into, while it also lines up alongside Mance's desire be free from certain societal restraints. Thus, a partnership is born. Now that is John. That is a great conversation to reread. It is really interesting. One chapter remains to us is the furthest away yet. So let's skip all the way down from the wall, across the narrow sea, and across all of Essos to Daenerys 1. And I'm going to start off again with a, a line from the opening paragraph. Yet even so, as she stood upon the forecastle watching her dragons chase each other across a cloudless blue sky, Daenerys Targaryen was as happy as she could ever remember being. So again, these opening paragraphs in these opening chapters are being used to their full potential. Right from the off, we are told that this is very different to the Daenerys of old. Firstly, and importantly, the dragons are now big enough to be chasing each other over an open water. That's pretty cool, and a very good way to get people reinterested in Danny's story, especially if you were like me and not the biggest fan of her Clash of Kings arc. Secondly, Daenerys feels happy. Have we ever had that before, aside from that very short time with Drogo, which is also a bit complicated? Storm Daenerys is not the Daenerys we knew. She started the last two books either being sold into slavery or dying of thirst in a desert. At the beginning of this book, she is safe, she has supporters, transport, but most importantly, she has control. The majority of this chapter is given over to her choosing between Pentos and Slaver's Bay, which George easily could have settled in her last chapter or simply left unpublished gap between. But I think that choice was made to show that Daenerys actually has agency of her own choices for once, for her fate and the fate of her people. All of it is superb setup for an arc of Daenerys in change, Daenerys out affecting the world, changing thousands of lives, changing an entire continent. For all the important characters who make all these important decisions throughout the series, it's hard to argue that anyone affects more people than Daenerys does in Storm of Swords, like I said right at the beginning about that paradigm-shifting um, effect she's about to have on everybody. And it all begins here with Daenerys finally being able to run her own life. But there's also a continuation of patterns here. Daenerys has spent time in the Dothraki Sea, an endless land of grass, in the Red Waste, an endless desert. Now she is on an endless ocean, and seems taken to it with much more ease than the first two. As Daenerys notes, she is no stranger to the sea, so we get a nice inverse of Daenerys being in her element and her Dothraki followers being somewhere otherworldly for once. And all of that's worth noting that they really haven't spent much time on ships yet. We get a quick beginning of Theon's first chapter, we get Davos sailing into battle, and then we're here with Danny, who has a much more positive relationship with Sealing than we see with an Ironborn and a Smuggler. Although in fairness, Davos's negative is who is about the battle itself, not the sea. So I'm cheating a little bit there. Her feeling of freedom and how many things she enjoys ties into that note of Daenerys just being happier, more confident, more well-rounded. Given all that we have seen of her so far, it's incredibly heart-lifting to see all of that. And ring the bell again, it's Captain Grolio. Hi, Captain Grolio. 
So we've got Tainer, we've got Val and Grolio. Now, one podcast for future tertiary characters. Don't worry, I won't repeat the same thing I've said 11 times now about uh, this being a gateway to new characters, although it is true. Let me read you another quote. And her crew, once as fearful as they were curious, had begun to take a queer, fierce pride in their dragons. So this is a really important note for the future of Daenerys. Obviously, she gained so many followers because of her actions, especially in, in terms of the former slaves, but having her own flying mascot, having something so unique and obviously powerful, is going to attract the hearts of men. I'm willing to bet any money you like we explore this phenomenon in great detail come wins, when the men of Westeros will get the chance to feel pride in fighting for the dragon once again. And while we do get a nice little reminder paragraph of which dragon is which, what they look like, and an update on their growth, George also pumps the brakes on the fact that they are larger than before. Okay, good. Larger, but still nowhere near fully grown or able to help with an invasion or anything of that sort. So we have to remain on tent hooks for now. Daenerys thinking up questions about dragon age and growth also serves to bring Jorah and Barristan onto stage so that we can be reminded of something else from that last class chapter. Jorah is not a fan of Arston Whitebeard. And I actually mistyped that in my original notes as Arston Whitebear. And I actually think that's a way better nickname and a, a better way to stick it to Jorah. So here's my petition that we call him Arston Whitebear from now on. And also I'd like to take this opportunity to remind everyone that Barristan knocked Jorah straight on his ass back on the, the calf docks. But once dragons and House Dargoyen get brought up, Barristan can't resist running his mouth, spilling out way more than a random squire has any right to know. In theory, Sir Jorah, a knight of the Seven Kingdoms, would know more. In reality, Jorah spent the majority of his life on Bear Island learning absolutely nothing about dragons. Not that Barry intersected with any living specimens, but definitely spent a long time overhearing stories of old, hence why he's able to give specific information and references, while Jorah is reduced to vagueness. He doesn't even know about the dragon pit. Seriously, Jorah, pick up your fire and blood. Being outdone in this manner instantly pisses Jorah off, leading him on the offensive and revealing his outright inability to handle his own emotions. He says, what do you know of dragons anyway? And that kind of smacks of something from the Feast for Crows prologue rather than Danny's ship. That's a real schoolyard move there, Jorah, just because you've been owned. Barristan goes from talking about flying dragons to clothed ones. We can't really blame Daenerys for being on her father's side at this point. She's heard very little of his true exploits and basically none from any source she would trust. Her worldview towards Targaryens, for all that she has learned in the last two books, still basically consists of everything Viserys told her, plus some largely unhelpful visions in Calf. Having said that, she knew Viserys had his faults and she is emotionally competent enough to lay those crimes at his feet while simultaneously love him for the rare kindnesses he did pay her and understanding why he was the way he was. And we honestly don't give Daenerys the credit she deserves for this kind of emotional intelligence. She is light years ahead of many characters in Westeros in this regard. Cough, cough, Lannisters, cough, cough. This conversation also looks different on reread, not only because we know that Arston is actually Barristan, but because we know Barristan is trying to weigh up Daenerys at this point and see if she is worthy of following. Ares would be a pretty good measuring stick, if not for the bias we discussed a second ago. So Barristan heads there. And almost the first words out of Daenerys' mouth are about not making an enemy out of a king. So you can kind of see, it's probably that language that keeps Barry in disguise for so long. He really needs to kind of double, triple check this. Besides, in the meantime, he can get his kicks in by towing the line with Jorah, uh, mocking him about the Ness Hightower. Because you know, if anything's going to piss Jorah off, it's that. When the conversation turns to Rhaegar, Daenerys has, a, has at least a slightly larger picture to draw from given her vision in Calf, but it's obviously useless to ask for information on that, so she reverts to asking about his sword skill, probably because that's all Viserys ever told her about. I really doubt Viserys was spinning tales of Rhaegar being bookish or singing or anything else, and remember Viserys himself had a very limited source of information. He was only a child when he was cut off from all tales of the Targaryens. As it happens, Barristan makes the connection for her by being much more keen to tell her the less-known side of her eldest brother while getting in some more jabs of what he thinks about Jorah too, which we like. These type of conversations are going to keep on recurring right through to dance, but we can see here that Barristan puts far more value and cared more, much more about Rhaegar than he did Ares. On the benefit of reread, again, we know this is because there's so much guilt wrapped up in Barristan's saving of Ares at Duskendale, but it's still fascinating to see how much value and hope he put in young Rhaegar. Here's hoping we find out more about that in Winds and Beyond. Once Barrison exits, we get possibly our largest example of Jorah's uber-possessive qualities yet. As he will also do going forward, he labels every newcomer, especially every male newcomer, as a potential enemy not to be trusted. 
This is something re rereaders know he is going to do over and over again, and it is the height of hypocrisy because Jorah has literally just abandoned his spying on Daenerys. The problem here is that Jorah is actually largely right in this instance. Arston isn't Arston. There are people who want to kill her. There have been attempts on her life already, and Illyro especially has dodgy motivations, so Jorah's advice kind of seems well-placed. Then again, he's also wrong, because Barristan is incredibly loyal, and both he and Belwas mean no harm, and in fact are far better for her than Jorah's own motivations. Let me read you one of Sir Jorah's quotes. The warlocks and calf told you that you would be betrayed three times, the exile knight reminded her, as Viserion and Rhaegal began to snap and claw at each other, which means two traitors yet remain, and now these two appear. I find that troubling, yes. Never forget, Robert offered a lordship to the man who slays you. And this is actually one of Jorah's more cunning moments, when he brings up the three betrayals mentioned in Calf. I don't think he believes in those visions for a second, but he does know that they must be playing on Daenerys' mind, so he tries to weaponize them as a, as a way to push Barristan, Balwas, Illyro, or anyone else further away and get him closer as a result. He even has the gall to bring up Robert offering people a prize, as if that is not literally his job description. The next act in Jorah's Danny's All Mine plan is to bring up the idea of going to Astaport and Slaver's Bay to buy Unsullied. Again, it is quite clever because there are elements that definitely work in Danny's favour as we will come to see. She can find an army of her own, she can put herself on level footing with Illyro, she can test the loyalties of Grolio and the others. But as before, we know Jorah's motivations are not for Danny's benefit. Firstly, it's fitting that Jorah the Exile, who is thrown out of Westeros for selling people to slavers, wants to head right back into the slave market, a misery he has no moral objection to, quite the opposite to Daenerys we already know. Also, this puts Illyro further away, again making Daenerys lean more heavily on Jorah. It interrupts the possibility of Illyro sending more Arstons or Belwasses to compete with, and it secures Jorah's position as Illyro could obviously out him as a spy should Daenerys ever reach Pentos. And Jorah is likely hypersensitive on this point, having just made the decision to give up the spying. It also makes him seem quite clever if this, as they like to say, if this all does pan out, which it does. So by this point, they've moved from the ship's deck and this conversation is actually taking place later at night in Daenerys' chambers. It's likely not a coincidence that he's bringing the, these things up whilst in that bedroom, whilst Daenerys is covered by just a sheet and while Jorah tries to make his move. Did he plan to go in there because he could sense the multiple rivals around and want to strike while the iron was hot? Did he have no plan and merely got enraptured with the ever-falling blanket, which George does repeat Danny having to cover herself, so I think we can assume Jorah is noticing just as much as she is. Either way, this moment has been examined time and again as ultra-creepy on multiple levels. There's the age difference, the lack of consent, the incredibly vulnerable position Daenerys is in here. The whole second half of this chapter really highlights Jorah's terribleness and his obsession with Daenerys. He makes a big gambit in trying to send her to Astapor and it is truly a momentous decision. Not only does it hugely affect what Illyro does with the Griffs by sending them marching instead of waiting for Daenerys to come, but it also eventually directs Daenerys to Dario and later Hisdar, so it doesn't actually work out for him all that much. Things will go bad from, for Jorah here on out, and he now begins to slow spiral watching Daenerys slip from his fingers. Given the, the creepiness of them for the moment, I have to say that word again, just creepy, let's all have a clap that Jorah ends up exactly as he does. Clappy clap clap. And something that doesn't get highlighted as much is the fact Jorah doesn't take a massive leap to get into Danny's bed, but also to become her dragon rider, her equal. Let me read you this quote. Your grace, he conceded. The dragon has three heads, remember? You have wondered at that ever since you heard it from the warlocks in the House of Dust. Well, here's your meaning. Beleriand, Meraxis and Vagar, ridden by Aegon, Rhaenys and Visenya. The three-headed dragon of House Targaryens. Three dragons and three riders. So again... Jorah is doubling down on prophecies from the House of Dust because he knows they fill Daenerys' mind and they are his best chance to get in there. He wants both her and the dragon of his own, and we can only imagine the kind of misery the world might have known if Daenerys had ever accepted his offer. Speaking of, George does leave this chapter on a highly ambiguous note. The chapter just ends, basically, and first-time readers could rightly be worried about what happens after this moment. Thankfully, as re-readers, we know. And that is... Daenerys 1. That is the end of today's episode. That's all our six chapters today. So there's a lot in there. Like I say, of course, there's more to talk about normally in these opening chapters because we have to talk about the arcs overall. I won't uh, cling on too much more. I'll let you go now. Quickly, uh, let's talk about next week's chapters. We only have one more uh, opening to go. Well, 
We have one more next week. There will be another coming later. So next week we have Bran 1, then Davos 2, Jamie 2, Tyrion 2, and Aya 2. So no John and Daenerys next week, which is a shame because I'm looking forward to those two a lot during this book. Okay, so it's been a long podcast. I'm sure you've got other things to do, but thank you for visiting the aisle. It's got even sunnier outside. I'm going to take Puppy for a walk. You've got listening and reading to do. We'll check back in next week, and thank you again for stopping by. See you later, everyone.